Well, good morning, New Life Manitou. My name is Dan, as you've probably already met. Uh, so would you stand with me as we crack open the Word of God to the book of Jonah? It will be on the screen here, and so we're going to start at the very beginning of the chapter out of the context of the Ninevites repenting here. But to Jonah, this, their repentance, seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious. You're compassionate. Lord, you're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to looking at this passage, knowing who you are. Though we pray these things in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people shouted, Amen. Amen, amen. You may be seated. We are looking today at the fourth chapter of Jonah, which is the zinger of the book of Jonah. It really is. It's the showdown between this prophet and God. And here we will see, as if you've never read the book of Jonah, if you didn't know, we find out a detail in Jonah chapter 4 that changes the whole thing. It's like you got to go back and reread it knowing what we find out in Jonah chapter 4 about the whole reason Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and instead he goes to Tarshish. We find out the reason why he does this and there's a showdown with God, the zinger of this book is chapter four. So let's review. I brought in uh, this book right here. And I thought I would read this and we'll see where this book ends. We'll see if this book gets us into chapter four. And, and spoiler alert, I can't find any children's books, uh, children's Bibles that get into chapter four. There's just some things we leave out of children's books from the Bible. I can mention some of them uh, maybe in a moment. But um, one of them that we leave out of the story is chapter four of Jonah because it's confusing. It's adult stuff. It's God and Jonah uh, like in this showdown and Jonah's really mad. And the thing that Jonah is mad about is confusing. It's confusing to adults. So let's review and then we will see if it gets into Jonah chapter four, which it it won't. It'll end very happily as most children's uh, books do. So Jonah and the giant fish. I can read the beginner's Bible by Zondervan. Jonah told the people about God. One day, God told Jonah, go on a trip. God said, people in Nineveh are doing bad things. Go there and talk to them. Jonah was not happy. And we don't really find out why Jonah was not happy in this particular text. But... He did not want to go, so he ran away. Jonah talked to some men, please let me sail away with you. And there he goes on a boat. And then we find out the boat went out to sea. It went right into a storm. It blew and it blew. The waves went up and down, up and down. The men were scared. Where's Jonah, they called. Jonah was taking a nap. 
See, look at him right there. There he is. Get up, Jonah, they said. We're in big trouble. Say a prayer for us. I am the problem, said Jonah. God is upset. I ran away from him, Jonah said. He wants me to go back. He wants me to go to Nineveh. How do we stop the storm, the men asked. Jonah said, you must throw me into the water. The men tossed Jonah into the water, and the storm stopped, and the sea was calm. And then we all know what's about to happen, right? Here it is. But up from the water swam a big fish. Swallowed Jonah whole. Jonah sat in the fish for three days and three nights. Look at him. He's got, see, he's got the, the view from the porthole thing. Um, I'm sorry I ran away. Thank you, God, for saving me, said Jonah. Then God said, uh, big fish, put Jonah back on dry land. So there he goes. Jonah, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Tell the people, stop doing bad things. This time, Jonah was brave. He knew God was with him. Jonah went to talk to the people of Nineveh. And we know it's Nineveh because of the little sign there. And then Jonah told people, stop doing bad things. They listened to Jonah. Last page. God forgave Jonah. God forgave the people. He loves all his people. Amen. That's a good, that's the children's version of this story of Jonah that we all know. That's the version the kids know. That's chapters one, two, and three. But here we are with the version of the story that every kid's Bible leaves out. And it's this showdown between God and, and Jonah and this, this vine that will grow. We'll talk about this next week because chapter four has so much in it. I decided we're going to talk about Jonah this week and next week to cover all that's going on here in this last chapter. But there's just certain things that many adults and, and all kids really can't grasp. It's beyond the, this, this understanding. It's an adult level stuff. It's high theological principles. We get into in the book of Jonah, it's, we find out it's really a book about racism, injustice, sinners and repentance, God's mercy for sinners and God doing what he wants to do in his sovereignty. And there's certain things that just kids don't get. It's why I think we have, I'm a connoisseur of kids Bibles. I think we have like 10 at our house and, and we read them most mornings. And for Theo, he's two, actually he's three. He just turned three last week for him it's like going through the book and like where's Jesus and he points to Jesus on each but that's him reading the Bible but for our other kids we go through these Bibles these kids Bibles and every single one of them they leave out the book of Job right they leave out the book of Lamentations they leave out uh, the book of Hosea if you remember what happens in that book it's quite an awkward scene um, it le- it all, all of them have the story of Daniel and the lion's den that Daniel wants to pray to God and uh, the people in, in um, where's he at? Babylon say, you're not allowed to pray to God. He prays anyways. He's thrown into the lion's den. Guess what happens? He is not eaten by the lions. The story ends there. It does not continue on with they gather up all the accusers and their families, the wives and the kids, and they throw them into the lion's den and the lions eat them alive. And it says that the bones of these poor people are crushed. It leaves out that part for good reason, right? (laughs) Gee whiz. (laughs) So 
Jonah, the book of Jonah, it's about a prophet and a whale and never in the, in the course of any kids' books that I'm familiar with. Maybe if you're into kids' books and writing, you should write like all the hard parts of the Bible. I'm sure it would not sell at all. Um, and so if we look at this story, I have three points for us this morning out of chapter four. And it's really going to get us into the heart of this book of Jonah. So the first point will be about God being gracious and compassionate. The second point will be about uh, Jonah being angry. Are are we supposed to be angry? Is Jonah supposed to be angry? And the third point will be to go back to the abounding love of God. So let's get into the text. Let's look at it. Chapter four, verse one, but Jonah seemed, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. What seemed very wrong? Well, God being merciful to the Ninevites, this seemed wrong to Jonah. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? And this is the first time we're, we're seeing this now. We don't really know. Like we, we read along with Jonah and we're like, why doesn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Why is he not happy? We, does he not have enough courage? Does he, this seems to think like the, the person of Jonah didn't think God was with him. But here we find out really the whole reason why he was called to go to Nineveh and instead he goes to Tarshish is because this. Because this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. What? Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. You see what's happening here? I mean, this is confusing stuff for a lot of adults. Jonah is upset with God. Why? Because God is compassionate. He wanted those Ninevites to suffer. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed beyond recognition. And he's mad at God for being kind and compassionate. Jonah's prayer, if I was to summarize it in two words, is basically this. Come on! Come on, I knew this was, this is what I knew was going to happen. You told me to go to Nineveh and preach, and now you're being compassionate and you're forgiving these people. Come on! In fact, that's the way the common English Bible, a very good translation of the English, uh, of the Hebrew in, in our modern day translation, translates this verse. It says, come on! And that's the way, I, that's how I picture Jonah here saying, come on! He wasn't afraid. To go to Nineveh, at least according to this. Maybe he had some fear. It wasn't a lack of courage, although that may have been part of it. Uh, It wasn't too hard of a journey. That may have been part of it. But here in the text, we learn why Jonah ran away. And he runs away because he knows God is going to forgive the Ninevites. I tried to, in my head, think of an example of this. Like someone being mad at someone else in charge showing mercy. And I thought about a time in high school when I was in uh, math class. I, I took a, uh, some of my friends uh, got into advanced placement calculus for their senior year. And I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. You guys must be really smart. And so I tried my hardest to get in. I, I took extra tests and things. And I barely got in. I had to work really hard. My friends just like basically asked and they got, they got in with good grades and they were really good at math. And so I got into this AP calculus class and it was really hard. I had to work a lot harder than the other kids because I wasn't as bright as the other kids. So I was working and trying hard in this class. And along came this project uh, towards the end of the semester that was like all these these problems that were like not 
high school level, not college level. But I, I assume these, these problems, these calculus problems were like graduate, maybe postgraduate problems. They were very hard. They took a lot of research and we were all assigned one of these questions. My question, my problem was about cassette tapes and the wheels of the cassette tapes and the speed at which the tape goes through the player. And as like the one wheel that's bigger uh, spins, the, the outside spins slower and then the smaller one would spin faster and I had to figure out an equation for like if this one is so big how fast and we know its speed how fast would the slower the smaller one be spinning and I probably need to go back do you guys know what a cassette player is do you know what a cassette tape is <laughs> so anyways just the wheel so this was 25 years ago I couldn't even begin to even tell you more about the problem I worked on because it was complicated and because it was a long time ago but I worked on this problem like like weekends I was working on that. I was going to my calculus teacher every day for lunch trying to figure out this problem for weeks. My parents, we lived in Germany at the time. We were stationed at an Air Force base, so an American school, an American Air Force base. My parents uh, went to Budapest and my brother got to go and, and I was invited and I said, no, I can't go. I got to figure out the dumb cassette tape problem and figure out like the, the spinning of the tapes and the speeds and it's like I'm going crazy. And finally, after weeks, a couple days before, before it was due, figured it out, presented it to the teachers, and she said, well, there's a couple ways of figuring it out, and you got it. You, you got one of those ways. Good job. Your hard work paid off. And I was like, thank goodness. It's all done. And then, like, the, the, the due date came about. Like, a couple days before it was due, all the other students that hadn't been working on their problem, like I had, all started complaining to the teacher and saying, like, this is too hard. We can't do this. We can't figure this out. It's all too hard. Why would you make us do this? And and the teacher relented. She said, well, you're probably right. I know this was the first time I gave these problems in, in my years of teaching. And so why don't we do this? Let's just cancel this assignment from the books. And I said, come on. Are you kidding me? Like, I've been working on this. How dare you have compassion on these idiots that waited till the last minute to do it, and now they can't do it. Who Like, this is horrible. Why? Why would you have compassion on these people? There, I should, and I even went to her later and said, can't I at least get some extra credit for doing all this work? And she was like, nah, you've already got an A. Like, don't worry. You know, you don't need it anyway. Boo is right. Thank you. And so in this silly example, and it's just that, I realize it's a silly example, but maybe that's a piece of like Jonah wanting, you know, him like being with the Lord and being close to the Lord and I, Lord, you and I, and all these Ninevites are so evil, they're so bad, and there's racism here. He wanted those Ninevites to suffer. God is compassionate. And then he throws back to God this quotation. Verse 2, I knew, he's throwing it back in the Lord's face, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Do you know what he's quoting here? He's quoting a very... Um, popular Old Testament uh, approach of describing God. This, this phrase is at least 12 times in the Bible. It's, uh, I, I heard a preacher say that this is the, the Old Testament equivalent of John 3.16. Do you know John 3.16? For God so loved the world. A very uplifting passage about the love of the Lord and the compassion of the Lord. This is the Old Testament version of that, repeated quite a few times in the Old Testament. And here Jonah is throwing it back in God's face saying, you're like this. You've 
always been like this. The first time we see this, so we're going to take a break from Jonah and go to Moses. And I'm going to talk about where this phrase comes from because it comes from when Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's receiving from the Lord the Ten Commandments. He's up there 40 days, 40 nights, and he comes up with the Ten Commandments. The Lord gives him the Ten Commandments. He writes them down. And the first commandment is have no other gods before me. The second one is to not make an idol. And Moses gets these Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain and guess what's happening? Do you know the story? There's the golden calf and they're breaking commandment number one. They're breaking number, commandment number two. Moses throws a fit. Moses loses it. And surely God is going to crush and destroy all of these people for doing this horrible sin. And guess what happens though? The Lord shows grace and the Lord then renews his promise with these people. We see it in Exodus 34. Um, so look, going back to Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord came down from the cloud and stood there with him. So him and Moses, the Lord and Moses, uh, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. We sang about the Lord's name this morning. He, is, he then passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that's the part that Jonah quotes. And continuing on, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wicked, the rebellion and the sin. So here's this beautiful picture of people royally messing up. God needs to destroy them and crush them because of their sin. And instead, God doubles down and renews the promise and says that his name, his very essence is compassion and grace and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Amen? This is the Lord we worship. I think a lot of times people think that in the Old Testament, God was really mean. And then in the New Testament, God's really nice. And at some point there was like uh, like a PR uh, change where like a rebranding of God. Like, oh, we need God's, you know, it's not coming across very well. So we need to PR rebrand him. And there's a New Testament God. And that's just not true. If you read the Bible, you will find mercy and love in the Old Testament. Here, Jonah is angry with God. Why is Jonah angry with God? Because he's too compassionate. He's too loving according to Jonah. And then the Lord asked Jonah this question. Do you have the right to be angry? So this will lead us to the second point here. And it's this question. So we'll, we'll talk around this thing and kind of answer it towards the end of this point. But is there, is it right to be angry. Let's look at the text and then we're going to back up to try to answer this question. Verse 3 says this, now the Lord, uh, now Lord, so Jonah's talking, sorry. Now Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. He's so upset about this. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. So two times in this chapter, we'll get to another one next week, the Lord asks Jonah, do you have the right to be angry? Six times in this last chapter is the word anger. Let's back up a little bit and, and kind of rephrase this question. The Lord is asking Jonah if he has the right to be angry. What is Jonah angry about? He was angry about the compassion of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord. See, he went into Nineveh preaching this message. In the English, it's just an eight-word sermon, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
eight-word sermon. He preaches that through Nineveh, and people hear it and repent. In the Hebrew, it's only how many words? You know, Brett? Five. He knows this. Of course he does. Five words in the Hebrew. A five-word sermon preached into the city, and the city completely turns around, repents, fasts, wears sackcloth, even puts their animals in the sackcloth and causes the animals to not eat anything and fast. They are so sorry. And then we find that the Lord will show them mercy. In the Hebrew, uh, to get into the Hebrew a little bit, I know you like nerd alert, so nerd alert, you know what to do. All right. Um, The Hebrew word here is 40 more days and Nineveh will be hopoked destroyed. And there's a double meaning here, as with a lot of words. In English, I think there, I could play with this just a little bit. We would say if, if, if something is going to be destroyed, it's like rendered useless, crushed, destroyed, no longer useful for anything. Like if a car gets destroyed, it's totaled. Erica was in a little car accident. Uh, it's, it's kind of, but she She's fine. The other people are fine. Uh, our car got its bumper ripped off, and so that our car is not worth very much. So it's totaled. It's destroyed. Like it's rendered useless now. We have to do insurance stuff. So that's one meaning of the word destroyed. But you could also use this English word, and definitely the Hebrew here plays on this, that another uh, way you could use the word destroyed, I might be stretching it a little bit, but to say that like a, a world record has been destroyed. Like this week, the world record for planking was destroyed. You know what planking is? Like it's an exercise you lay on your elbows and you lay down and you count the seconds that you're able with your upper like uh, core strength to plank, right? So if you're really good, you might be able to plank a minute or two minutes would be like, wow, the person could plank two minutes. That's incredible. The world record was destroyed this last week. Did you see this? By a guy who planked eight hours 15 minutes, and he's a young whippersnapper at the age of 62 years old. Destroyed the planking world Guinness Book of World Record. It's amazing. He destroyed it. We could say, we could use the word that way, right? And so in the Hebrew, this word hapak means like to destroy, to render useless, but it could also mean, the double meaning here is to be turned specifically from something bad into something good. Like the phrase in the Old Testament, you turned, hopoked, my mourning into dancing. Are you familiar with that verse? So this same word, like when Jonah went through this city preaching 40 more days and Nineveh will be hopoked, he assumed that meant destroyed and utterly crushed and rendered useless. But how do you think the Lord meant it? The Lord meant it in this beautiful way that they would turn from their evil into something beautiful and good. And so Jonah is asked the question of the Lord, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? Let's back up and talk a little bit more about this specifically. Because what Jonah wants here is not really justice. Jonah wants Revenge. Jonah does not love the Ninevites. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. That's the furthest thing from, from Jonah and what he's about. Um, Jonah thinks that this whole thing, he's mad because he's accusing the Lord of evil. 
Like the Lord shows compassion. And it says in verse four, or chapter four, verse one, that this seemed wicked. This seemed wrong. This seemed evil to Jonah. That's the same Hebrew word in the very beginning, Jonah chapter one, verse one, when it's the, the wickedness of Nineveh came up. So the, 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 and it's the same word, once again, when Jonah's in the boat and there's a storm and the sailors scream out, what is causing this wickedness? And it's this play on words where Jonah is now accusing the Lord of wickedness, like the storm and like the evil that the Ninevites did. And the Lord says, do you have any right to do this? And I think we know the answer. But let's take another step back uh, just for a second and talk about anger. Is it wrong to be angry about anything? And to this I would say, well, if you're angry for what the Lord is angry about, well, that seems like the right thing. I think we as church people put on the church face and smile and we just think, oh, it's wrong to be angry. But if you read some of the Psalms, there are prayers to God that are extremely angry and and deal right in head to head with feelings of anger and depression and wanting uh, disaster to come upon other people. There are prayers prayed in the Bible that blame God for things. Dealing raw with emotions is not wrong. There is something about righteous anger. Indignation is when we are angered by injustice, and it seems like the Lord is also angered by that. So I would say, to answer this question, I would say it's not wrong to be angry if the things you're angry about are the things the Lord would be angry about. But here, Jonah is doing the exact opposite. He is angered by something that the Lord, the Lord showed compassion Jonah is angry. He wants revenge. It is not right for Jonah to be angry here in this particular passage. But what we can learn from this is that we are given permission to pray to God like this. Like we can bring, if we read the Psalms, if we read the the very famous prayers of the Bible, we see people going head to head with God. And this is something I think is very hard in our church world today is is to be okay with being raw with the Lord. I think yesterday uh, I had breakfast with some guys here in our church and we went around just talking about how we were doing. And some of us were not doing okay. And we talked about that. And we, like, I teared up listening to our stories. And, and we did not say, oh, just cheer up. Everything's happy. Everything's good. No, there was like a deep, like, sharing of prayer with these people and, and saying, you know what? The Lord does give us joy in our sufferings. We don't have to pretend that this doesn't hurt. We don't have to pretend that we're not angry. But the Lord is here and he will from the inside out give us joy even in the midst of horrible circumstances. Let's be honest with each other and the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. This here is, I think, uh, the biggest temper tantrum anyone can throw in the Bible. Like Jonah is throwing an all-out temper tantrum. He goes, and I know a lot about temper tantrums. I have four little boys, and there's once a day, someone's throwing a a royal one. And this one takes the cake, though. Here in Jonah, Jonah throws a temper tantrum. He's angry. He's mad. He he says, I'm taking my toys, and I'm leaving. And he just goes, it says he goes east, which is indicative of, of, of like exile. Like the Babylonians come and takes Israel east. When Cain kills his brother, he is exiled, and he goes 
east. It's, it's so Jonah here is like self-exiling himself to the east. He doesn't want anything to do with God. He makes a shelter. We'll talk about this next week because we'll get into the vine story uh, and what the shelter could have been. But he's sitting there waiting it out. You can assume that he preached 40 more days and then it will be hapak, destroyed. And here he's probably waiting for those 40 days to be up. He's furious knowing that the Lord is going to show mercy and compassion because these people have repented. And so here we have Jonah in this season of, of you could call it the dark night of the soul. I'm reading this book by that title by um, St. John of the Cross. And he, he writes about um, these nights, like the dark night of the soul, the depression, the showdown with God, the, the struggling with doubt and faith that we all go through, some more than others, sometimes more than other times. But this is one of those times for Jonah where he is crushed by God and the way God acts. And it's, it's all messed up because the way God acts is, is merciful. And here Jonah is mad about it. But we'll put this quote. Let me read for you this quote from St. John. And it kind of gives us the picture of what Jonah is going through. God leads us into dark night. Those whom he desires to purify from all these imperfections. What's the imperfection of Jonah? Well, racism, he hates the Ninevites, he wants them to be killed. That's an imperfection. And so, the Lord, that he might bring them further onward. The Lord, God, I'll read it again, leads us into the dark night. Those whom he desires to purify from all these imperfections so that he may bring them further onward. The Lord has led Jonah to this time here to teach Jonah something. And we, as the audience, get to read this story and wonder, like, have we done this? Do we look down on other people and want you know, the best for ourselves, but we want judgment for others? And then do we get mad ever when the Lord shows compassion to those whom we don't think are deserving of it? Well, maybe so. Let's look at this last point. It's this, point number three. God is abounding in love. And there's very good news here for all of us that are like the Ninevites, all of us that have strayed from the Lord, all of us in need of mercy. There is a very beautiful message here that God is abounding in love. So think about this whole thing with mercy and judgment. This was last week's sermon. We, we talked about you can't really have justice and love. Like they, they're the same, uh, the same coin, different sides of the same coin. To be loving, you have to be just, you know, if you saw something going on, like a group of uh, high schoolers beating up an elementary school kid, and you did nothing, and you say, oh, I love them. No, you, you, would need, you need to pull over, you need to stop, you, said, you know, honk your horns, do something to stop this. There wouldn't be love without an act of justice. And so the, the thing that I, I've been thinking about this week is how that works in Christianity. I think a lot of religions, uh, I wrote it down like this, every other religion, um, quoting someone else here, um, uh, the super being, God, or whatever it is, uh, exercises mercy in the place of judgment. It's like they overlook judgment for a minute to be merciful. And so judgment just kind of goes away. And every other religion says, I'm going to be merciful and, and not do any sort of judgment in this time. I, I know some, or I knew some uh, Muslim guys uh, in college, and 
they would often get together and, and drink quite a bit. And, and they, they would had this joke. They had this saying, because Muslims aren't supposed to drink alcohol. They had this saying that when they drank, uh, Allah would blink. And so they even had this phrase, I forget what it was, and they would drink and say, Allah blinked. And for them, it was like, the, the Allah, their, their God, is just you know, putting aside judgment and just showing mercy in, in these instances. I think Buddhism or Eastern religions, there's this like, uh, maybe a lot of religions have this scale, like an old balancing scale, where if you do something wrong, well, then you need to do good things. It's what they call it karma and work off the bad things. And so if you do something really wrong, like hurt someone or do something uh, like that can't be undone, you've done this horrible thing, you're down here, and so you just need to you know, volunteer at the public library, do some things, keep, keep doing, trying to do good things, and maybe one day you will work off this, this evil things. And that's not the way Christianity works. Both of those ways, um, not how Christianity works, how Christianity works. It's the only religion I know that where God's judgment is placed upon himself. Where God doesn't say, I won't just, I won't just pardon you and, and, and forget about justice. I'm all about love. But instead, the judgment of our sins is placed on Jesus and on the cross. And it's fully taken there. Justice is served. And then the Lord is able to show mercy out of that. So while Jonah goes down further and further, we, we talked about last week, down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the sea, then down into the belly of the whale. Who chases him all the way there? The Lord. He's right there, loving Jonah, showing mercy to Jonah. When Jonah goes east, he's like, you know, he does his message, he preaches it, then he tries to run from the Lord again. He goes east of the city. Where, who's right there with him? The Lord, chasing him down in love. I think if Jonah's forgotten anything, he's forgotten that he is the one who also needs Repentance. He's the one who needs mercy. And instead, he's calling upon these Ninevites and he's mad at them because of the Lord's love and the Lord's grace. Let me close with this one last story that's so, sort of a, a, an analogy, maybe a prophetic image. I was thinking about this week of, of sharing something with, with you that will bring us to the table and bring us uh, to repentance. It's where we all need to, to go and to be. Um, the prophetic image I have is, is this image, um, and it's, it's one that's common to the Bible and uh, the communion table. And imagine yourself going to like a king's banquet or a dignitary. You show up, and it's this old way of doing things where you're, you know, you're supposed to show up with gifts for the king, and you show up, and for whatever reason, maybe you don't have a gift, maybe you can't afford a gift, maybe you forgot, you show up to this castle, and you have nothing to give. You have nothing. Everyone else is coming in, and they have fancy gifts and expensive gifts, and you get to the gate to go in, and you just see all these people going in with these gifts, and you have nothing. And you're like, oh, gosh, I have nothing. I guess I'll just go home because I, I, I don't belong here. I, I, don't, I don't have anything. I can't afford it. And so you go to the king's palace. You turn around and you're on your way home. You're on your way out the back gate. And guess who sees you? The king himself sees you and says, hey, come on up here. And you're like, oh, no, I 
don't have anything. I've messed up. I see everyone else coming in with these gifts to bring you, and I have nothing. I forgot. I can't afford it. Everyone else has these great things. I've got nothing. And the king looks at you and says, just come up with me. Would you sit with me and be my guest of honor? I didn't expect you to bring anything. Come sit with me. Come receive. And I think of Isaiah 55 where we are invited to come buy and eat without money, without cost. Come and eat this meal. It's the richest affair and you don't have to pay anything. This is this image of communion that we are coming in with nothing and there's all these, maybe in our own heads, all these other like Jonah type characters looking at us and pointing at us and saying, he doesn't have anything. And they're mad at the, mad at the king because this person doesn't have anything. That person is you and yet we get to come in and when we are greeted by the king, We see nothing but his grace and his mercy. Would you stand up with me? Would you pray with me as we consider these words? The band can come up. So, Lord, we come before you, and, Lord, we're we're humbled and we're in gratitude of, of your mercy, your abounding love, your steadfast love. It's never ending. You have compassion on us. And so, Lord, we come before you and we ask you to forgive us. We're going to pray the prayer. We're going to put it on the screens and and pray this prayer that we often do in unison. Let's say it now. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.